Praise God. We are right in the midst of it, aren't we? This is the last Sunday before Christmas. It is the fourth week of Advent. Can you believe it? Time is just flying right by. Um, you know it's Christmas time because I break out my red shirt once a year. I break out my red shirt. I said a couple of years ago, I don't have a red shirt, and then somebody gave me a red shirt. They just say, here you go. So this is it right here once a year. Uh, I want to make it clear today, I also don't have a red Porsche, just in case. Throw that one out there. Well, uh, I'm so thankful for what God's doing in our midst. Are you thankful for this time of worship this morning, for this worship team? Praise God. This Friday night, amen. This Friday night, we're going to get together and we're going to spend some time singing some of those great Christmas carols together. We're going to have a candlelight service here at Christmas Eve. Encourage you to come on out, make that a part of uh, your Christmas tradition. It's good to come together and be remembered the reason for the season. Amen. Um, there's so many great songs that we sing. It's amazing just during Christmas time. I used to be one of those people that said, no, we can't break out the Christmas songs yet, but now I let them come earlier and earlier in my house because we only have a little bit of time to sing them. But one of uh, my favorite Christmas songs, I think one of the, the greatest songs ever written is Handel's Messiah. How many of you know that? The song has become so famous and, and so well known on its own that many don't realize that its entire text is taken from the words of Scripture. It's such an amazing piece of music that the audience almost always feels compelled to stand as the chorus is sung, and he shall reign forever and ever. Handel's Messiah comes straight from a text of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 9, and this morning we're continuing a series on this very famous text. And since everyone stands for the Hallelujah Chorus, we're going to do something we don't do every week. We're going to stand for the reading of the Word. Can we do that this morning? We're going to stand together as we look to God's Word in Isaiah chapter 9. It says there, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when you divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. Now read together with me verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Remain standing with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word today. We thank you for this promise. Lord, it's a, it's a promise of hope that your people needed to hear so many years ago, but we recognize today it's a promise that we need to be reminded of again. Lord Jesus, we thank you today that you are that wonderful counselor, that you are the mighty God, that you are that everlasting Father, and that you are that Prince of Peace. We pray this morning, this week, this season, Lord, that you would reveal. 
reveal that in greater ways to us, that we would understand all you are and all you've done. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated today. And as you're seated, I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to that passage. Now, during these four weeks uh, of Advent, these four Sundays of Advent, we've been looking together at the four descriptions of the Messiah that was to be born in Bethlehem. His name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And can I just say that these descriptions, this understanding of who Jesus is, is so needed in our world today. I, I think now more than any other time, at least I see it in my life, that our world needs hope and our world needs security. And as I thought about this series back in November, here's my heart, here's my desire for you today, church. I want us all this morning to go a little bit closer to home. You see, as God's people, I believe this, that we ought to be a people of hope. Amen? We ought to be a, a people of hope. Not weighed down. We ought not to be so concerned with what's going on in the world because ultimately our trust is not in the things of this world. Our trust is not in the wisdom of this world. Our hope is in Christ, and because of that, our hope ought to be immovable and unshakable. Amen? We should be filled with hope. In fact, I say it this way, we ought to be hope dealers, not dope dealers, hope dealers, okay? We ought to be those who bring hope to others, but we cannot share what we do not have, and we can't give away what we don't have. And so there's no better way for us to be reminded of hope than for us to look at the gift that God brought to earth when he delivered his son from the womb in a stable in Bethlehem. I want you to stop for just a moment today and imagine what your life would be like if you really understood what God wants to be in your life, who he wants to be in your life. See, I think when you really understand that, just imagine how much that changes you and gives you clarity and gives you courage and understanding and hope. It's why I've committed my life to the preaching of the gospel because I believe this is the only place where we find true and lasting hope. And God knew that his people needed hope. His people, Israel, needed hope. And so 700 years before Christ was born, 2,600 years ago, now God foretold the birth of Messiah by choosing a prophet by the name of Isaiah to tell the world what an amazing baby would be born and what his name would be called. And so we're continuing this progression that we are making through the four names of God. Two, two weeks ago, Pastor Floyd shared about why he's called a wonderful counselor, right? And then Pastor Sal shared last week why he's called Mighty God. And so today we're going to focus on that name, Everlasting Father. And, and as you wrestle with those names, as you make them personal, here's my prayer, that you would know without a doubt that your life was designed according to the plan of a wonderful counselor. He's had a plan for your life from, from the very beginning. That you would know that, that your life is being changed by a mighty God who is able to execute the plan that he has for your life. And today, that you would simply be able to rest in the care and attention of one who is everlasting Father. And so as we jump into it today, I have to tell you, this is one of those messages that really aims at the heart, right? Because how could you talk about Jesus as a father without aiming for the heart? All right, but before we aim for the heart, I want to aim for your head for just a, that sounds bad. I want to go for your head for just a few moments, and I want to give you some amazing facts about this passage and the, the time that it was written. First, let me share with you some geography. I think we have a map here. We can put it up. Do we have that slide? Okay, here we go. Uh, how many of you love geography? It was one of the few things I was good at in high school, that and earth science. I don't know why I was so good at earth science, but it was easy, right? 
Some of you, though, you, you read this passage and you wonder right away, right? Where is Zebulun and Naphtali? Where is Galilee of the Gentiles and the way of the sea? And so let me show you. In this map here, it's a map of the, the ancient tribes of Israel. Now, we know that when the children of Israel exited Egypt and they, they moved into the land of Palestine, their leader at that time was Joshua, right? And he divided the land into 12 portions, kind of like 12 states or 12 countries, and he assigned those portions to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, a little history. Israel, not the nation, but the person Israel, was the grandson of Abraham, right? And Abraham was the one to whom God had made a promise. He, he made a covenant that he would make him a great nation and that all the world would be blessed through that nation. Now, the Old Testament tells us that Abraham's first two sons were named Ishmael and Isaac, right? Ishmael is, is the father of the Arab nations, and be, because they were not the inheritors of the promise, they've been at war with the sons of Isaac ever since. Now, Isaac was a son to whom God continued his promise to make him a great nation, and Isaac had two sons, and they were Jacob and Esau, right? Now, if we're talking about names, we're talking about the name of Jesus here, just think about the name Jacob. It means in the Hebrew, it means a supplanter or a usurper. Jacob was the second son of Isaac, and according to, to Near Eastern uh, legal code, when a father died, his property was divided into equal shares based on the number of sons plus one. So if a father had three sons, it would be divided into four portions. If he had nine sons, it would be divided into ten portions. You guys are good, all right? So now Near Eastern law dictated that the eldest son always received two portions and the rest received one. And, but Jacob, again, he's the second son of Isaac. He, but remember, he's a usurper. He's a supplanter, right? And so uh, Jacob developed this habit of, of usurping, and he tricks his older brother out of the inheritance that was due the firstborn. It's, it's amazing because God made a promise, right? And his promise was to build a nation, and ultimately that nation was going to come through Jacob's line, out of which the whole world could be blessed. But the world could hold, hardly be blessed when it was led by a, a con artist, right? Can I just say a nation led by con artists cannot be blessed, okay? Because Jacob would no doubt pass on that lifestyle to his children. Because here's the reality today. We, we can teach what we know, but in the end we reproduce who we are, okay? For better or worse, your children are a lot like you, right? Some things you're proud of, some things you struggle with, they're a lot like you, okay? And so God knew that he had to correct this huge character flaw in Jacob before Jacob could lead a nation. And, and so one night, the angel of the Lord, who is it's a, it's a pre-incarnate Christ, right, came to Jacob, and he wrestles with him about this nasty habit. And, and God's wrestling with Jacob was so effective that in the morning God said to him, because we've wrestled together, you're not a conniver anymore. That's not who you are anymore. I'm going to change your name. Instead of being called one who usurps, people will call you one who has wrestled with God. That's the name Israel in Hebrew. That's what it means, one who wrestles with God. And so Jacob, now called Israel, went on to have 12 sons. And those 12 sons had many more sons and daughters, till eventually the clans of those sons formed a great nation. And it is out of that nation that the whole world has been blessed, because out of that nation, the Christ child was born. Amazing, isn't it? Two of those 12 sons were Zebulun and Naphtali. You understand where that comes from now? You can see them up to the, the northern part on that map. 
and their, their descendants settled in that northern region of, of Israel, and they, they prospered there for about 600 years until the time of Isaiah, when the Assyrian army comes and invades, and it takes over that region, and, and non-Jewish people, Gentiles, right, begin to settle there. And so after the Assyrian invasion, this region known as Galilee was resettled by Gentiles, so it became known as Galilee of the Gentiles. And so if you look back at your text and you read there in Isaiah 9-1, when you see Zebulun and you see Naphtali, you can see why they were in gloom, right? Why they had been humbled, okay? Um, they've been conquered. They've been taken over by the Gentiles. By the way, that lake in the middle of that region, you can see it there, a big lake. It's known as the Sea of Galilee. It feels a lot more like a sea when you're out on it than a lake. Now, most armies and trade caravans from foreign lands would enter Israel from the north, okay, when they would come in. And so Israel really has uh, three major north-south highways, if you will, and trade routes, okay? Uh, in the middle, right where you see from the Sea of Galilee going down to the Dead Sea, that is the Jordan River, and right there is, is the Jordan Valley. It's, it's surrounded on both sides uh, by mountains, and so it's not a, a great travel route, right? Um, but let me show you here, there's three, you go to the next slide here, three really the travel routes, north-south travel routes. The, the route that's closest to the Mediterranean Sea is what's known as the Coastal Highway. Unique name, right? Makes sense, right? And then there's a, a route on the outside, you can see it all the way to the east that, that skirts Israel entirely. It's known as the Way of the Desert, again, a very unique name, right? And it was actually, that route was actually the preferred route of traveling because it avoided all the stops that you had to make going through the cities of Israel. And so that route was actually the preferred route of, of the kings of Israel. It became known as the King's Highway, okay? Before it was a road in Congress, it was a road there, okay? The King's Highway, right? And, and the third route, the route inside of Israel, you can see it there, it crosses right by the Sea of Galilee, and so it became known as the Way of the Sea. And, and so all three of these descriptions, I want you to see, they picture the same thing. Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee, the Gentiles, and, and the way of the sea, they're all synonymous. Now, right where those two meet, the coastal highway and the way of the sea, you can see they meet together. They meet in a town called Megiddo. When we visited Israel, it's been a number of years, hopefully we'll have the chance to travel there again sometime soon. But we had the opportunity to travel and, and see Megiddo. It stands right on the edge of the valley, guarding it from the north to the south. And so th this valley is known as the Valley of Megiddo, which in the Hebrew is Armageddon. Okay, anyone ever heard of the Battle of Armageddon? Anybody ever seen the movie Armageddon? Bruce Willis, that's a totally different thing. Okay, but this is where the battle is, is said to be fought, okay? Because no army coming from the east can invade Israel on foot without going through the Valley of Armageddon, okay? And so the history of Israel is full of battles that have been fought by major world powers right there in that valley. Now, Jesus was raised in the town of Nazareth in the middle of this valley. And so in history class, he would have studied the history of this valley. Even though he wasn't a world traveler, he was raised in this, this kind of nexus of, of international travel. Jesus was well aware of the nations and their importance to God as a result of his upbringing. Now, the book where these verses we're reading from is, is the book of Isaiah. Anyone know why it's called the book of Isaiah? Because Isaiah wrote it, right? It's, it's the book that Isaiah wrote. Sometimes it's the easiest answer, right? Isaiah wrote from about 740 B.C. to 680 B.C., and he, he lived down in the southern part of Israel. He lived during a, a time when the northern part of Israel was being destroyed 
and assimilated by the Assyrians. And so it's this scary time in Israel's history. Now, during the first part of Isaiah, God addresses the nation of Israel to warn them about war that is coming and how to cope with that. But during the second part of the book, God addresses Israel about the aftermath of the war. It's in order to give them hope on what's on the other side. Um, now, there, there are two sections to the book, and one is about how to live before hope comes, and one is about how to live in hope. Anybody know how many chapters there are in the book of Isaiah? 66. 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters are what we would call pre-hope chapters, because they describe the judgment that is coming on the people of God. And the last 27 are in-hope chapters. They're about the deliverance of God, all about God's comfort and his grace and his deliverance and his hope. Interestingly, how many books are there in the Bible? 66 books in the Bible. The Bible has 66 books. The, the first 39 are the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. The next 27 books are the New Testament. And really the first 39 books, what we know as the Old Testament, are really pre-hope books, right? They're all about how to live before Messiah and before hope comes. They focus on the law. They focus on judgment for disobedience, right? And the last 27 books of the Bible, what we call the New Testament, are in-hope books, they're all about how we can have a personal relationship with Jesus because of the cross. It's pretty amazing, isn't it, the, the way that those two uh, reflect each other. Now, like the Old Testament, the, the first section of the book of Isaiah is divided into some subsections. I'm not going to take time to list all of those, but I just want to tell you this. Isaiah chapter 7 through 12 is a good place to spend some time during the Advent season, a good place to read this week, okay? It, it's what we would call the book of Emmanuel. It talks about the coming of Emmanuel, right? God with us. Isaiah 7.14 says that he's going to be born of a virgin. Isaiah 11.1 predicts that he will be from the house of Jesse. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 2 says that God's spirit will be upon him. And and the verses we read today from Isaiah 9 say, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Of peace. He will be called Everlasting Father. What an intriguing name that is. I think of all of these titles given to the Christ child, this one probably raises the most questions, right? How can a child be a father? Well, we know he's going to grow up, right? But, but how can a, a newborn be uh, so old as to be called everlasting? It's simple. This child existed long before he came to earth. Now, in the Hebrew, it's actually. Father everlasting, okay? Av is the word for father, and Av is everlasting or eternal or unceasing in duration. The the child born in Bethlehem will be recognized as Father everlasting. Now, why did God the Father call Jesus by this name? Why did what did He have in mind when He gave Him this title? What did He want us to imagine when He announced seven hundred years before it happened? Better yet. What difference does this make for us today? Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to a people that were living in uncertain times. People who desperately needed something to cling on to and hold on to. I wonder, is that us today? People in uncertain times want someone they can depend on. They they want a father figure, if you will. But 
here's what you need to know. This is not a reference to the first person of the Trinity. This is not a, a reference here to God the Father. Rather, this is a designation of the quality of Messiah in respect to his people. Jesus will act toward his people as a father acts toward his child. And, and really, the adjective everlasting it is not a reference to his eternal nature. No, it is referencing the never-ending nature of his care for his people. A better way to say this than everlasting father, I think, is this way. is father forever. You see, the adjective really qualifies the nature of Jesus' father-like care. What is his care like? It goes on and on forever. In other words, hear me today, he's not a father who leaves. He's not a father who takes on the, the charge of caring for his own, only to abandon that charge. There is no need to fear that this father is going to leave home. There's no need to fear that this father will abandon his children. Jesus, the Messiah, is father forever. Understand this today. He, he never abandons us. He, he never throws us out. He never goes back on his promises to his children. I want to take you to another passage in the Old Testament. Can you turn your Bibles to Psalm 103? If you're still there in Isaiah, turn left, okay? And go back just a few books. Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is, is a psalm of David. And David writes these words in Psalm 103, verse 13. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. King James Version, if you're still in King James, uses the word pitieth, right? Like a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them who fear him. Now, we don't really get that when we're reading King James, because we don't use the word pity in the same way today, right? Uh, if you're a child of the 80s like me, you hear that word pity, and you think, I pity the fool. I pity the fool who messes with me. Come on. Anyone 18, Mr. T, come on. Right? And so I read that verse, I'm like, what was this all about? Right? What does pity mean? Here's what it means. It means a feeling of sorrow and compassion caused by the suffering of others. Understand today that God feels sorrow and compassion for our suffering in one way, in the way a father feels for his children's suffering. Pity really highlights the warmth and the emotion of that verse. It's the nature of true parenthood, right? You see, every father views his children in a way that he doesn't view anyone else's children. Like, you cannot, no matter how hard you try, view someone else's child the way that you view your own, right? You can look at them, and you can admire them, and you can compliment them, but understand it is the mark of a good father that when you look on your own children, there is something that cannot be duplicated outside of the bounds of fatherhood. That's contained in this verse. Pity, empathy, compassion. God pities us not the way one man pities another man, but as a father pitieth his child. If I told you today that there's a child in the hospital, you might say, well, what can I do? How can I pray for them? Like, what's going on? But if I were to tell you your child's in the hospital, you would be in your car on your way to the hospital, right? It's, it's a different kind of compassion, and it's a, a different kind of pity. Why? Because you have compassion for your children like no one else does. And understand today, that's the kind of compassion the Lord shows to those who fear. Yes, Jesus was born a child, but look what happened when Jesus grew up. He cared for people like a father cares. He nurtured people back to health like a father does. He prayed for people like a father does. He was there for people. He, he was strong and he was dependable like a father ought to be. You see, fathers 
if they're anything in the lives of their children, they ought to do certain things and hold certain places in their lives. For instance, fathers ought to believe in their children. If you study the life of Jesus, you'll find someone who believed in people. Fathers should be firm, but at the same time, they should be loving, which is exactly how Jesus was with those he encountered. Fathers also ought to provide this place out of which their children can derive an identity. We were at the dentist's office a few weeks ago. My whole family, we had a family trip. So let's all go together and just get this done, right? And, and so I'm waiting there in, in the waiting room as my kids are, are finishing up. The door opens and in walks Benny and Norma DeVito. Now, Benny has been around here for a long time. A long, he, he was telling tell me that he's probably the oldest man in the church. I think he might be right, okay? He's been around here for a long time. And so we got to sitting there and and just reminiscing, and we were reminiscing about some of the great men of the church in the past, men like David Chivik and Cora Titlin, Alan Rosino, men who've invested so much of their lives and their time in this place. And then, of course, we spoke about my grandfather and my father. And we're getting ready to, to go out the door, and as we're getting ready to leave, he, he says to my kids who are still there with me, he, he said, you guys, you, you come from some good roots, you got some good roots, and it hit me. You come from some good roots. I gotta say, I'm, I'm thankful today that my children have a place out of which they can derive an identity and, and, and a godly identity, a godly heritage. They can say, you know what, I'm a Johnson. I come from a long line of Johnsons. We we know who we are, right? And maybe today you're here and, and you don't have a father who has done that for you, but understand, if you are in Christ, understand Jesus did that for you. He did that for you. For 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been saying, I'm a Christian. I'm historically linked to generations of Christians all the way back to Jesus Christ himself, who is my father. You see, fathers ought to provide a place out of which their children can derive an identity. And fathers also should be thinking about or planning for their children's future. We think about it. I'm going to believe that way, right? What am I going to do as a good father? You think about these things. Well, in John 14, 1, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He was thinking about his kid's future. Now, now many times in the Gospels, as you read it, you can see the fatherliness of Jesus. One time, as Jesus is traveling up to Jerusalem, he, he gets word that the king of Jerusalem, a man named Herod, wants to kill him. And I love it because Jesus isn't shaken when he hears that. He doesn't go back out into the countryside. He doesn't run for, for covering. He keeps walking toward Jerusalem. And as he comes to Jerusalem, he looks out over this city that's laid out in front of him. And almost in, in a whisper, he says to himself, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her under her wings, and you were not willing. Can you hear the words of a father there, right? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you have no idea how much I care for you. How often I've just wanted to, to scoop you up, and I've wanted to wrap my arms around you. And so what does it mean to us that this Messiah is a father forever? Number one, I want to say this. It means that he forgives us completely. He forgives us completely. Verse 3 says this in that, in that same psalm. It says, he who forgives all of your iniquity. 
He, he's the one who redeems your life from the pit. I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't treat me today as my sins deserve. Are you with me? I'm so thankful that he doesn't treat me as my sins deserve. Now, this does not mean that God overlooks looks sin. It does not mean that he just ignores my sin. He's, he's not a benevolent Santa Claus who says, you've been naughty, but I'm still going to be nice. That's not who he is. It's, it's much more complex than that. Because we have to understand these verses in the context of God's character. Because God is holy and God is just, he will not, he cannot, he does not condone our sin. He, he doesn't just look, overlook it and say, I'm going to turn a blind eye to that. I'm going to make pretend I, I just didn't see that. Ready? Which, when we think about it, is immediately a problem for every single one of us in this room. Ready? Because all of us have broken God's law. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And, and, and because we are aware of our sin, we know this, man, we're in trouble. I, I think that's why so many people try to do whatever they can to fill their lives with every kind of distraction because they don't want to face this truth. Because at the core, when we're honest with ourselves, we, we know we're sinners. When we lie in our bed at night and we examine our lives, we know, man, there, there's stuff in my life that God ought to punish, Right? And if he's going to grant forgiveness, it cannot be because he simply overlooked the fall. There, there's only one solvent for the stain of sin in our lives. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. It was the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for my sin and, and for your sin. Now, if you follow the line of Isaiah's portrayal of the Messiah, you know that this child is going to grow to manhood and that he goes to the cross to bear the punishment for our sins. And the only reason that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve is because Jesus died in our place. The only reason God does not count our sins against us is because he already counted our sins against Jesus on the cross. Understand this. Christ came and he lived in perfection. He never sinned. Not even once. And so if death is the punishment for sin... There's absolutely no reason for Christ to die unless he died in the place of sinners like you and me. And so Christ goes to the cross and he's covered with shame so that you and I could be covered in glory. That's the love of a father, a, a forever father. He forgives completely. How can he forgive completely? How can he forgive every sin in our lives? Because he knows every sin. He, he knows us thoroughly. He, he knit us together in our mother's womb. When the world says it's, it's just a fetus, God's knitting it together, right? And you can read that scripture and you can understand, man, there's intimacy, there's purpose there. Scripture says, he knows how we are formed, verse 14, for he knows our frame and that he remembers that we are dust. Some of us need to remember that this morning, we're dust, right? In other words, each one of us in this room, we have a cell by name, okay? Each one of us have, have a certain shelf life, if you will. Are you with me today? That means that our life should not be controlled by fear, okay? Fear of sickness, fear of a virus, okay? Not if we know Jesus as a forever father. And listen to me today. If your worldview cannot answer these three very important questions, it might be time to change your worldview today. These three questions that everybody asked at some point in their lives are, who am I? Where did I come from? And where am I going? 
Because in the darkness of life, eventually you'll come face to face with these questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? And where am I going? And Jesus, as our Father forever, not only addresses our guilt and forgives our sins, but he also gives us an answer to the issue of identity. The psalmist answers that. He says, my frame was not hidden from God. When you read that, here's what you can know and what you can believe today. You're not just a number. Amen? I'm not just a number. I have a father. You're not just a number today. You have a father. Please hear this. He knows your name. You're not worthless. You're not worthless. He he knows your name. You, You have a forever father in Jesus. But just think about the hopelessness of this world that does not know Jesus as father forever. They, they still ask the same questions, right? Who am I? Well, I, I don't really know. Where did I come from? Well, they talked about it in science class, but I still really don't have a clue how all that works. Where am I going? Well, I don't really want to answer that question. Just pour me another drink, right? Turn up the music. Let's live a little faster. Find another empty relationship. Why? Because there's no answer to the deep questions that plague you when you are alone at night. No answer from this world. However, you will find every answer that you need and then some when you know Jesus as your Father forever. When He's your Father, all of a sudden you come to realize you were created by God and for God to be in a relationship with God. With this Father forever, there is forgiveness, there, there is freedom, there's a new family. Some of you in the room, the, the people in this room are closer than your own flesh and blood, right? You're part of the family of God. This Father forever forgives us completely. He knows us thoroughly and finally he loves us endlessly. Verse 8 there says, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Mercy, steadfast love. Some translations say mercy, but the word in Hebrew is It's the unending love of God. Some of you asked me about my tattoo. That's the first word in the tattoo. It's hesed. It was a a word that was so special to my father through the years. This idea of the unfailing, endless love of God. God is love. And we know this. It's his love that leads us to repentance, right? What I deserve, I will not receive because of the hesed of God. The steadfast love of the Father forever. Verse 17, but the steadfast love. Again, there it is. The chesed of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. In other words, his love is forever. It is a covenant love. It's a love that seeks us out. It's a love that pursues us. It's the love of a shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find that one sheep that is straight off. And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders and he carries it home. It's, it's a love of a father who sits on the front porch and scans the horizon just waiting for that prodigal son to come home because when he sees him, he's going to run to him. He's going to put a ring on his finger and a, and a cloak on his back, a robe on his back. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to bless. And can I just say, this is the message of the gospel. This is the message of the gospel. That, that, that the one we've chosen to ignore actually comes looking for us. He, he pursues us. The, the God I had zero interest in, he is the one who seeks me out. And today he calls you son, and he calls you daughter. This father forever welcomes you into a family, and he forgives completely, even while he knows you fully. He welcomes you into this family. He desires to shower on each one of us this hesed, steadfast love, endless love. I think it's the one thing the human
there have been songs written about her, right? Endless love. Luther Andros and Mariah Carey, while she still had her voice, right? Endless love, right? But, but here's the problem. Sin breaks relationships. And death changes those relationships. In every single instance, except one. It's the endless love. Steadfast love. He's a father, just think about this, who knew you before you were born. He sets affection on you. He, he came to, to meet you where you were. Some of you, you know today, you were not in a good place. You weren't seeking him, you weren't looking for him, and yet he pursued you, he found you, he sought you out. I'll say this morning, if you want to know the love of Christmas, the love of Christ this Christmas, I implore you, I beg you, to trust Jesus Christ. It's by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross that we are saved, that we come into a loving relationship with the Father forever. The Word of God tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For some of you, it's the Christmas season when you step over that threshold of the faith. You can do that today by simply acknowledging your sins. Acknowledging your need for a Savior and trusting the work of the cross. If you want to know God's love, trust Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I have to warn you today if you reject that, if you reject the love of the Father forever, I have to tell you this there is no other love in all of creation that will be able to fill the gaping hole that will be left in your heart. You see, the promise of Messiah in Isaiah 9 ought to bring us all hope. You can know today, you can know without a doubt that you are made according to the plan of a wonderful counselor. That your life is being changed by a mighty God. And more than anything, that you can rest this Christmas in the care and the attention of one who is Father forever to each and every one of his adopted children. Would you stand with me this morning? Before we close with the song, I just want you to think on this for a moment. It's bowed around this room. Or just think about this this morning. That he's a father forever. He's, he's a forever father. I don't know what your relationship was like with your father. Some of you in this room, it was, it was amazing. And you can look at him, you have pictures of your own father. For others of you, your father wasn't present. He wasn't there. And so you need to, to, to kind of shift things and say, that's not what he's like. That's not what God is like. God is, is, is a father. Jesus is, is a father who remains, who stays, who knows me full well. He knows all my faults. He knows all my shortcomings. And yet he forgives me. And he forgives me. He forgives me. Can you just thank him this morning?